VR has been probably most widely adopted uh, by safety groups, and they do become IT <laughs> experts overnight because they're they are maintaining the entire hardware software um, setup. Training in the health and safety space is often an up, uphill battle. You know, there's a fine line between the compliance and and the actual utility of what you're trying to accomplish. We don't we don't see a thin line between compliance and and utility you know, hands-on type training, we see a big, bold line between the two of them. Even with a compliance-based test, we really expanded the um, the ability for the user to um, to see uh, hazards and uh, and materials and, and characters um, in a visual way and um, and make an assessment based on, on what they saw. It really is more about understanding the behaviors people have as opposed to saying we did it we can move on. Hello, and welcome to the Prevenovate podcast by WorkRight Northwest. In this series, we will talk to experts in academia, industrial health and safety, elite athletics, and sports medicine to learn where innovation and prevention collide. We will highlight examples of how to properly prepare the industrial athlete to work safely and discuss the lessons we have learned in both industry and in athletics that we can use to drive prevention. Those that move for a living are industrial athletes, and we want to combine the best evidence from sports as well as from industry to guide best practices, empower the industrial athlete, and align everyone towards a higher level goal of prevention. Hello, Preventivate podcast. Welcome to another episode today. We're going to be talking about, uh, to some of my favorite people, um, most of the time, these conversations are, are with colleagues, with professionals. Um, today, it's, it's with lifelong friends. So we're going to be talking with uh, John and Zach Parnell, both with ITI. Um, and just for your background, ITI is, is one of the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in 2020. You know, they've got a bunch of awards, uh, most recently, the Liberty Mutual Safety Innovation Award in construction for their VR construction hazard ID platform. And they, they really collaborate with some of the largest players in the construction space. Uh, some of the big ones, including Bechtel and Qit, among many others. Um, but I think what's most important and, and uh, most special about these guys is, is they are graduates of Ridgefield High School, which is, which is worth noting because we were sputters together. Our mascot was a potato, um, but we were also Loved playing baseball and got to play on the same baseball team that won the state championship in high school. So we've been friends our entire life, um, but we're both indirectly connected to safety platforms and, and trying to push forward um, innovation in the health and safety space. Uh, work right, as many of you know, from the industrial athlete side of things and and sports medicine and in the industrial setting and in ITI in the crane and rigging training and, and safety space. So um, first off, you know, guys, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for, thanks for having us. I, I can, I'd love to, uh, correct one thing, Nick, you're very kind. We, we, uh, on the Liberty Mutual Award, I just relooked at the plaque and it's sort of ironic or funny. We were honorable mentions and, um, the Jonathan and I joke along with the development team that, um, there were, we were of three finalists and it's a really cool safety innovation award. And the, we, we basically lost to a really innovative bucket and a really innovative ladder. So we find that hilarious. And uh, it was a heck of, those were, I would definitely buy the ladder myself. Uh, the bucket was a, 
I think like a silica dust or dust uh, collection type uh, system on a bucket for mixing concrete. So anyways, um, we are we, we tell everybody that our, our VR construction hazard ID assessment is, is very innovative, but not quite as innovative as a bucket or a ladder. I like you it. You can't really improve on the original there. <laughs> well, just for context for the listeners, um, you know, you guys have very different roles, um, but you're a part of the same organization. Uh, from a background perspective, um, John, you're a West Point graduate. You're an Army officer and a civil engineer. And, and after that, that career, you've transitioned into the role of SVP of product development. Um, and on the flip side, Zach, uh, you, know, you are the CEO of ITI and have been for a handful of years now. Um, you, you also, when I was asking you to tell me some bullet points that you want me mention, wanted me to mention, you said you know, you're, you were a father and a surfing enthusiast, but I think an, an appropriate edit would be you're a father of a whole bunch of kids. Um, you've got a big yes. family. Yes, sir. Yeah. So with that said, let's dive into it. Um, you know, I know training in the health and safety space is often an up, uphill battle. You know, there's a fine line between the compliance and, and the actual utility of what you're trying to accomplish. I think this resonates with many of our listeners who sat through training that, that they felt like were just checking the box, right? Um, you guys have as, as well, I'm sure. And this is a space that ITI has been creatively working so that you can ensure that you're not just checking the box for your customers, but instead you're, you're ultimately driving true behavior change and improving the work, workplace safety of the employer groups that you serve. Um, you know, my question is, is, is what have you guys done to ensure that you really are, are, are not providing a check, check the box solution to your customers? Yeah, I can, I, I'll take that first. I mean, I think, um, and what you'll learn about us both, I guess, uh, and Nick, you already know this, but Jonathan, as a professional engineer and very methodical and a very good builder of things, I'm much more on the creative side and, and uh, entrepreneurial side of things. And I, it's funny, our dad started the business, ITI, with our mom back in 86, 1986. And I would say that from the beginning, they were never, they were never asked as a company to do any sort of compliance-based training. It's always been, I tell people that my, our father was an Eagle Scout by the age of 14. And he was a, he put Boy Scouts to work um, at a camp growing up um, for 10 years on staff at a pretty large camp. We're talking like a 5,000 kid a, a summer camp, you know, over uh, eight weeks or so. And uh, in general, he, he just totally built the training business around skills training. So teaching people how to, uh, for example, uh, conduct load handling and rigging activities under overhead cranes or mobile cranes. And a lot of that, I mean, the employer in those cases, whether it's the DOD or, or uh, power plants or, or paper mill, they're not looking for check the box at that point. They're looking for people to be very competent at what they're doing. It's a lot of math and physics training. And um, so I think the company's culture and, and, and then obviously what we've done um, that Ever, ever since has always been about skills building first, not really what we call compliance. Um, and I think Jonathan might tell you a little bit about what we're doing in the compliance space now. Um, and, uh, but it is, it, it's more of a, um, when you're, a lot of our VR demand initially, virtual reality demand has been around um, 
basically performance examinations. So a performance exam of somebody inspecting something or hazard awareness or whatever, that, that ultimately a performance exam, unfortunately, is a check the box type of thing. I hate to say it that way, but it is a, you're validating someone's performance or their competency on a topic so that you can, you know, qualify them on that job task. And um, so it's, it's interesting um, what Jonathan, the development team has built uh, recently in virtual reality I would say that's the most enjoyable uh, performance type performance exams you can take. You know, by basically playing a playing a video game that's obviously a serious game. But go ahead, John. I'll turn it over to you. No, it's exactly right. Yeah, from the very beginning, um, you know, we've always been a hands-on training provider, and and we really see you know you we don't we don't see a thin line between compliance and and utility you know hands-on type training. We see a big bold line between the two of them, and. Um, when you know we put students through a master rigor course here uh, in person um you know they might get three to four hours of of classroom time but the afternoons are, are devoted to to outside and hands-on and uh, getting uh, getting the experience that that they really need um with construction hazard you know, it's really funny um and we'll, we'll probably open this up a little bit further but um uh you know with such a a unique medium to to provide an assessment in you know initially the one of the first passes um with that assessment was was actually multiple choice within the the vr uh, experience and it it was horrible like it was no fun at all and it uh it it uh it it really strained even my you know my limited creative skills to come up with enough um you know, fake uh, answers to that multiple choice test as as to what you would see and and the hazards present, and um, and it really limited the the medium. Um, and so, you know, we even with a compliance based test, we really expanded the um, the ability for the user to um, to see uh, hazards and uh, and materials and and characters. Um, in a visual way and um, and make an assessment based on on what they saw and so you know it it's literally taking um, putting putting fun kind of back into an assessment that's devoted to some sort of you know compliance but at the end of the day they're still getting you know some hands-on experience even in a virtual world yeah and i, I think yeah. it, oh, I, I was just going to add real quickly that I, I think there might be some nuance here as well because when I think of compliance, it's it's in referring to check the box. I'm talking about doing something to say you did it. What I'm hearing you guys say, even in the performance exams, is yeah, there's a compliance aspect to it, but you're wanting to ensure that people have the skills necessary before you put them on a job site. And so I feel like that is more, you know, I guess to, to your use your phrase, skills training. It it truly is more about understanding the behaviors people have as opposed to saying we did it, we can move on. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah, and that's another, even some of the. Oh, sorry, didn't cut you off. Sorry. Go ahead. No, just the other thought we we apply to almost everything we do in, in involving online learning or VR simulation is uh, we do pre testing all the time. So um, their pre tests help. Um, one of the biggest things employers want to get rid of is redundant training. We think one of the biggest costs. Um, so in general, in the in the U.S., there's about a 
1% uh, of payrolls are spent on training, just a broad um, figure for you. And, and um, there's a lot of thought that there's not a very good uh, information around this, but there's ballparks around that we've heard that are anywhere from 10 to 20% of that training, of that spend is essentially redundant. Um, and, and that just makes your stomach turn if an employer, as an employer, a construction company or facility or power plant or whatever, is um, not only they're, they're, it's like they're, they're checking the box on something on a redundant subject even or um, something that frankly people could be testing out of. So the, if you're not implementing pre-tests and allowing people to test out of a subject, mm -hmm. um, it's fairly wasteful. Uh, so but go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, really similar to that. You know, some of the, some of the feedback <clears throat> received when we were you know, piloting construction hazard I had a chance to uh, travel to Austin with uh, one of our project sponsors and um, there was a superintendent down there who who you know came off the job and just uh, was kind of called in and didn't really know what he's getting himself into but uh, had a chance to you know go through partial assessment and um, he said man if you if you said I had you know to sit for two hours uh, in front of a PowerPoint presentation and and you know, try and try and learn OSHA stuff um, mm -hmm. and, and compliance or, you know, get under a headset for 45 minutes and, and just go go do it. Man, I, I choose VR every time. And so it's a it's a medium that that uh, uh, it immediately engages the user um, and where they they don't have a choice but to uh, participate. So we're we're pretty excited about it. You know, you, you kind of lead perfectly into a, an area I wanted to go down the road. And that, and that's, you know, talking about those experienced guys, you know, the, the crane operators, you know, I would assume are your more experienced construction workers probably tend to be a bit stuck in their ways and, and maybe less, or you would assume, or many of us might assume would be less open to trying new things and, and especially cutting edge technology related to their work. Um, are you guys doing anything unique to help, folks adapt to the times or or has this not been a challenge you guys have, have ran into? You know, I, I would say that um, we work a lot with the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE, and then um, obviously in the industrial general industry space, there's overhead crane operators are come from a myriad of crafts or manufacturing workers and so on. But I'd say in, in general, uh, those that craft has been very open to technology in, in the, the crane cab in the mobile crane world has been just filled in, in the past two decades with, I mean, uh, hoist cameras that are bringing camera and, and different, different visual perspective into the cab, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I, we have heard about augmented solutions where those heads up displays and whatnot being developed for operators to utilize. And then it's really neat, the IOE out of um, the International Operating Engineers, they just signed an agreement with a robotics company even to, uh, that are make, uh, built robotics is making um, automated uh, excavators, skid steers, and, and, and so on. So they, they're bringing those automated equipment, autonomous equipment down to Houston, their big training center, to um, train the, the engineer, operating engineers how to work alongside them, but also uh, uh, maintain them and fix them or, and so on and work on them. So I, I, in general, I think um, as a broad, broader saying, most crafts are very open, I think, to change and understand that 
Um, innovation doesn't really stop for anybody. Um, and then it's on a, on a micro level for in VR, we have had obviously anecdotal experiences where um, both, both less experienced and more experienced people have, have been um, very, uh, oh, uh, what's the right word? Um, just uh, have a negative perception or negative expectation for what's going to happen in the headset and they put it on and they're pretty floored, you know, by the, by the uh, experience. So, um, and, and I don't know, I, I think in general, they're um, uh, construction workers in, in particular are open to technology and, and frankly, they have to be, I, I'm sure everyone's aware of the McKinsey did a really neat study about four years ago that showed manufacturing basically outpaced construction productivity by about 3x over the past 40 years. Yeah. Um, and construction knows, and the construction industry is well aware that they've got to uh, improve their productivity. So most crafts are aware as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, I, I guess building off of that and maybe progressing, um, you know, what's, you guys have been in the space, you guys were early in the space. I would say, and it's been, this is not a new uh, venture for you. You've been operating here for a few years. Um, what was the journey like for you as you pushed into this world of augmented reality? Um, you know, and, and have you seen any substantial improvements in the capabilities, you know, for the people that you're caring, the training um, using the AR, AR or augmented reality and virtual reality? Yeah. I uh, Jonathan, you might speak to the design tools. I mean, we're seeing incredible improvements in Unity and Unreal's engines. They're, they're almost in an arms race, and that's the engine that's, that's used for developers to build this content primarily. Um, uh, want Unity is a public company, and I think they're both valued over, over $200 billion right now. But, um, you know, we've used both engines, but Jonathan, you might speak to that, because that, that really is the foundation of what's possible in VR. It all starts with the engine, the development engine. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, that's certainly important. Um, you know, with, I think, you know, we're fortunate enough to be um, in a position as a company to, to offer a lot of different uh, learning modes. Um, and, you know, VR as a platform, you know, regardless of, of which, which uh, as, as a mode, regardless of which platform it's developed on, um, you know, allows us, you know, you talked about baseball, just allows us to, you know, get the, get the virtual reps in um, for skills we want to um, uh, enhance and, and, to, and to teach to. Um, VR, I think, has expanded those opportunities um, uh, when the learner may not have the tools at hand or, you know, maybe even the venue to practice in. And um, so we're seeing, uh, you know, in this environment now with uh, you know, some, some remote learning and, and some, uh, uh, some industries that, that still haven't returned to work um, due to, due to uh, health concerns, um, you know, we're seeing, um, seeing virtual learning take place at a, at a pretty uh, massive scale. Um, and so, you know, what, what began, at least for our company, as a, as a, um, a simulation, an equipment simulation platform, um, we're seeing the value in in uh, providing this as kind of a wider skills building platform as well. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, John, and that was something I, I was going to talk to later, but but I think you hit on it now, and and that is, 
you know, the capability of, of allowing for a more, more remote training environment um, when we are somewhat socially distanced and, and, but able to do it in a way that still simulates the real work environment as opposed to just sitting behind a video and watching it and passing the test, you're actually able to demonstrate some skills. So I appreciate you bringing that up because I think it is so relevant for all of us currently. Um, you know, transitioning, if, if, if I'm new to this space, as many of our listeners haven't, haven't pushed into the uh, virtual reality environment, what, were, what pitfalls should they be aware of? And what are some of the solutions that, th that they can be thinking through to, you know, streamline their path forward? Yeah, um, we'll work with a lot of innovation teams in construction and general industry. And one thing I, I love about um, Bechtel's approach to innovation and David Wilson, their chief innovation officer, um, we got to get him on your podcast, Nick. He, um, he, he talks a lot about don't, you know, obviously don't go create, don't have an idea that is looking for a problem. So we've, we've certainly seen that in the VR space where people want to, deploy VR, we've had companies come to us and say, we have a VR initiative. And the question then becomes for, for what? Like, what, do you, what problem are you trying to solve? And it's, it's, it's no, we have a VR initiative. Uh, we, we're gonna adopt VR and they're really looking for a problem to solve. So, I mean, if you're okay with that being, you're, you're really doing R&D work at that point, but we like, we obviously wanna flip the approach to be focusing on a problem that really needs solving um, and uh, that's um, that's probably the first thing I would say. The other thing I would say is there's just there's it's such early days actually still. Um, there's over there's I think there's over seven or eight headset makers you know in business still, mm -hmm. and there's really big players like uh, Facebook owns Oculus and HTC, uh, but there's all the Windows based products and so on. And uh, we've seen some very uh, very challenged platforms among those users in um, how they want to how they want to distribute content. So um, we've got a you know very large energy company um, working with, and they they want um, they want our content, but they're being told by their the, the company that makes their headsets, um, you know, to to use that content, you have to have this online account. You actually have to buy this phone mm -hmm. to enable the content on that device. And it's just this really poor distribution method, actually. So yeah. a pitfall would be, I would not recommend people really go, um, you know, it's great to go buy a headset or two for some testing, but obviously search for a problem, keep looking for problems to solve and really create an innovation team um, is the is really best practice. And then um, you're, 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 you really have that team focus on the most high value problems to solve for your organization. And if one of them happens to be something that VR can help, you know, then you want to avoid kind of some of those things I mentioned. Yeah, you make me, I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but you kind of make me think of the Apple specialty of where they're designing the, the software for specific hardware in mind. And that was part of the strength of Apple. But on the flip side, sometimes you can run into the challenges with non-Apple providers that the apps don't work with the phone or vice versa because the software and hardware weren't created for each other. And I think that's yeah. somewhat what you're you're alluding to. Yeah, yeah, you bet. I mean, it took, you know, in the 80s in the PC revolution, they talked about a computer on every desk, you know, Jobs and Wozniak and Bill Gates did. That was the, that was the mantra for the industry. And it, it legitimately took 15 to 15 to 20 years to make that happen. 
Um, uh, and I would say we're, I don't think it's going to take 20 years to have a headset at every desk, but I'll tell you that despite how long it takes, they definitely, uh, companies got to figure out how they're going to integrate headsets into the existing IT infrastructure. You just can't, um, these can't be expected to be standalone devices that are incredibly difficult to administer. And I would say the, the headset industry is pretty flawed in that respect right now. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, the, you know, a lot of times we, we, uh, we interface with, you know, internal safety and training groups and, you know, those, those groups should really prepare themselves to, you know, manage the, the, the hardware as well as the content that's going to be on them. And, you know, it, it may take an internal relationship with, uh, IT in order to, you know, to fully utilize it. Um, you know, it, it's a, when, you know, even if a, a customer receives a crane simulator of ours, um, you know, we, we can perform implementations, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, uh, it's theirs to use and uh, they need to be prepared for, for the management of that. John, that makes an awesome point about the IT. Every, every safety professional, I'd say we're primarily working with safety professionals in our VR implementations. Um, it's, it's ironic that that's, you know, we typically work also with equipment managers, um, oh, plant and maintenance managers and also uh, training managers and HR departments, but VR has been probably most widely adopted uh, by safety groups and they do become IT <laughs> experts overnight because they're, they are maintaining the entire hardware software um, setup that, that comes their way. Yeah. I, I, I'd uh, say another thing too about pitfalls, you know, if, um, with, with every application that we've built there, there's been some sort of onboarding, even if it's the, you know, crane simulator and it's very cut and dry about, you know, which controls do what, there's still a level of onboarding that goes on inside the simulator and, um, you know, content that you're, that you want to develop or, or even, you know, this goes back to, um, you know, training to a, a very wide audience for um, both experience in their field as well as experience in, you know, with, uh, uh, VR hardware, which is really, really synonymous to, to gaming hardware. So uh, game controllers and whatnot. And, you know, with anybody who um, has never picked up uh, a controller before, it's, it's critical to, um, uh, to adoption really of, uh, of the hardware to, to get that person um, uh, understand exactly what they need to do in the simulation and the the tools they need to to do it so uh, that's why in every you know every application we use there's there's always some level of of, of onboarding whether it's a you know a, a just an just an image that displays what buttons um, mm -hmm. perform which actions or you know a full-blown um, scenario where they kind of learn learn step by step it's critical yeah that's a great point Jonathan that I mean we one of the if if VR is efficient, Nick, it's like that's part of the appeal. Typically, you can if you can do a virtual reality exam in 30 minutes or a two-hour, you know, tr really experiential training. Um, the efficiency goes away real fast if it takes <laughs> you know, 30 minutes to train the person how to use the headset. Like right. so, uh, uh, most people they're putting on a headset in craft or uh, industrial environments maybe for the first time. So. They've got to quickly understand, obviously, it's not so much putting the headset on, it's just getting in the app and, and understanding what the controllers, what the controls do that you've given them. 
and um, we need that throughput time to be, uh, you know, 30, 35 minutes, not, not two hours because of the user training time. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some key points that I think you guys bring up that, you know, we might not think through, but have been, you've earned that expertise through you, years of, of trial and error and, and innovation. So I think it, it can be, um, I mean, it's just gold for people listening if they're going in this space to think through some of those pitfalls. So I really appreciate you sharing that. As we look at augmented reality, virtual reality developing and continuing to move forward, um, you know, how does it need to, or how do you see it continuing to adjust to meet the needs of, of health and safety agendas for, for industry? You know, uh, I've seen some very good deployments of AR applications. And when I, I mean, AR is, for those that don't know, is putting a typically a headset on somebody that, that delivers augmented or virtual assets in real space. So the user is seeing the real world, but you're delivering information and, and 3D graphics or words or whatever, and even audio and um, all, all sorts of stuff. So, so think Google Glass, um, right? Or, or, yep, or exactly. Yep. Yeah, so the, the major challenge we've we've seen with AR primarily is, I just liken it to this, we, we, we are able to interface with the industrial workforce of North America when they're typically in training mode. You know, the employee or the, the workforce is in training mode. They are, they are not punching a service ticket to go do a job. They are either, you know, in a classroom doing a VR module or they're, you know, um, hands-on doing some training somewhere. So, you know, when the, when the person is um, in, in training mode, you know, their, their productivity is expected to be sacrificed for a short term so they can get training and you can put a VR headset on them. Um, it, I got to say the AR side of it is so much more critical when you're putting a device on someone for the rest of their, you know, and by the way, employees workforce, they're only in training mode one to 3% of their time. You know, they're really productive, hopefully, you know, 95% of the time, uh, not to say they're 100% utilized, but, you know, it, training versus productivity is about about like that. So, you know, we've seen some serious challenges in uh, getting devices on folks uh, in in productivity time. And it's, it's the same hardware deployment issue. You've got to be able to have an infrastructure in place to manage the IT charge the devices, disinfect the devices. You've got to have really good content that is, I've seen, what's really worked, I've seen is workflow content. So if you're trying to show, if if someone from, you know, um, Ingersoll Rand is going to go ma uh, maintain a pump or a uh, AC unit at somebody's job site, they want to walk that person through a the 90-step process that, uh, is, that services that, that part or that um, component um, accordingly. And AR can do that really well, doing workflows. But in general, there there are there's just additional hurdles that are um, tough to get through in the productivity world. And the last one of the other ones is just having the device industrial ready. So most nuclear plants, petrochemical plants, they don't allow um, you know connected devices in a lot of cases. Um, there is, I mean, one device with RealWare, RealWare's HMT1, that device has been designed from the ground up from industry. Uh, they just did a big fundraising round, and I think, uh, I believe, 
Um, Microsoft was involved in that. So I, I know that that device is built for industry first to overcome that issue. And it's all voice command in, in general. It's not, there's not a lot of, I don't think there's any hand gestures involved. So there's a lot of hurdles to make stuff efficient to do work better than a book in our brains and our hands do currently. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just so many challenges there. I think that's, that is a, such a huge area of discussion, but I, I think it, I think you're exactly right. We've ran into some of the IOT challenges with some of the wearable technology we've used and also some of the computer vision stuff. And, and it, it is a very real challenge and it seems like it's pretty customer centric, right? Every facility and their, their security systems are unique and you have to try and figure out technology that can merge with those, which is, which is always challenging. So I think that's a really good good point to bring up. Um, if I were finish, finishing it off, you know, maybe thinking outside, you guys were early to the space of virtual reality. What's next? And, and maybe this is asking a lot, but where, you know, maybe not specific to ITI, but where do you see innovation in health and safety, um, you know, five years down the road or 10 years down the road? What's the next virtual reality that you think can make the biggest difference? Uh, kind of a big question, Nick. I mean, if I had a crystal ball, I don't know. It, it's, um, you know, I think there's, there's, it's so early days that there are a lot of, um, just a lot of scenarios and experiences that we can, that we can create um, and provide value for, for learners. Um, you know, there's, there, there's, um, I, I think, I think we'd like to do, um, and if I'm hearing hearing Zach, it's uh, it's kind of a blurring of the line between you know between training and learning mode and and productivity. Mm -hmm. And you know the more that we can can uh, start to push towards the the productivity side, I think with um, you know workflow enhancements and um, you know remote mentors and um, and uh, start expanding kind of the digital spaces that that uh, that we take for granted on a you know a consumer level um, I, I think we start to see some of the some of the productivity enhancements come out um, in in construction that's been that, that hasn't uh, hasn't kept up with the uh, pace of other industries yeah I, I would just add some macro macro subjects it's really hard to you know, predict the future, of course, but we are in the midst, along with a lot of the Western world of skilled labor shortages. Um, luckily, the U.S. has a fairly um, congruent population stack, but, you know, places like Germany and Japan, even Canada have, have upside down pyramids and are, are going to be facing significant labor shortages. Um, so that's, that's a huge element. We, we've got several general industry customers that expect 40% of their maintenance staff to be retired by 2025. Wow. Um, so that's just incredible. And obviously the construction trades have had shortages for a long time. Um, so I think, you know, obvious response to that is, is in automation and robotics uh, investment has been growing very steadily every year. Um, that's nothing new though, right? We've, industry has been adopting automation as much as it can. Um, but in maintenance work specifically, manufacturing, you know, when you're producing 10,000 10, of th something, you know, the same thing or the same process, that's um, much easier to automate than 
um, you know, maintenance work that's that's incongruent or inconsistent, as well as obviously construction work. Um, but you know that that the construction version of automation, not really automation, would be you know more modular construction, and and that's happening as well. Um, and I think what Jonathan mentioned, if you're for the for listeners out there, if you if your organization doesn't have a bespoke like knowledge base growing internally, that's that's um, developed in a way that that can be added to very easily from many of your workers. You really got to get started on that. that. I mean, the, the idea of having having remote experts um, as well as um, people across the organization contributing to bespoke knowledge bases that's based on your plants, you know, your processes. That's that's vital. So um, remote expert. Uh, what we're seeing a lot of companies do is do doing remote expert, whether it's with application like uh, stream you know through mobile or mm-hmm. <clears throat> obviously like realware or um, even FaceTime you know you can capture all of that video and bring it into an internal um, knowledge base and catalog it and, and and so on so creating that knowledge base is just vital to kind of get through um, the skilled labor shortage and and people are organizations got to get much quicker at, at um, developing their people. And one way to do that is obviously to um, cut right to the chase with different um, specific procedure training, which some industries do really well, and then some do very poorly. Yeah, I mean, for those of you listening, this is the type of conversation John, Zach, and, and myself could would have at a barbecue or a poker game. Um, we, we could talk about this type of stuff for hours or um, but that's not the point. And so um, if they want to get a hold of you and they want to go dive deeper into this, where's the best way for, for our listeners to find you guys? Oh, I just encourage anyone to visit iti.com if you've got uh, interest in our services. And then uh, again, this is Zach Parnell and Jonathan Parnell. Happy to chat further on LinkedIn. Uh, there are not many, par- too many Parnells out there, especially not state champion sputter Parnells like, like <laughs> Mr. Petit also is. So um, anyways, that's how you can find us. And we really appreciate the time, Nick, very much. Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, this, it's been fantastic. I think there's a couple of things that I wanted to highlight that I, I, I wrote a couple of pages of notes, but a couple of the key takeaways that I, I wrote down was, you know, focus on solving a problem with your innovation. Don't, don't get tied to an initiative. Don't get tied to the VR initiative and then try and figure out how you're going to use it focus on solving problems. I thought that was, that was fantastic. And I think you referenced um, uh, Bechtel and, and their strategy when, when you were discussing that. Um, another one was, you know, make sure you're aware of the onboarding process when you're integrating these solutions and make sure that uh, you have a team to help with that. So, and that team is multifaceted. It's not just EHS, it's not just, it, it needs to integrate, you know, IT, probably some element of HR as well to make sure you're prepared to, to do it well and, and improve that efficiency um, with it. And, and then I, I, I admit, I, I had no idea the impact on the labor shortage with respect to maintenance in the US. So that number was just, you know, 40% is just remarkable. Um, so I appreciate you guys for taking the time. I've enjoyed the conversation. I know our listeners will as well. And I think this is the front lines of innovation and prevention. And so I'm grateful for you guys taking the time, um, you know, and, and to our listeners, you know, wherever you're listening to the podcast, if you take a minute to, 
to like the podcast, write a review if you have a second and share it on your social media platform. It, it makes a huge difference for us. The more attention the podcast gets, uh, really the, the further we're able to spread our vision for prevention and innovation in the workspace. So we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation next time. To our listeners, thank you for joining us and helping on our mission to educate and empower the industrial athlete. Please reach out through our website, workrightnorthwest.com, for feedback, questions, or more information on who we are and what we can do for you. We have resources for clinicians, safety professionals, and industrial athletes, and often post on topics we find useful within the industry on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can also find great videos and instruction on our YouTube page. Come check us out. We hope to hear from you soon.